0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the aiconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Jesse Anderson, Managing Director of the Big Data Institute, and my colleague Paco Nathan, who besides leading the learning group at O'Reilly, was recently appointed Program Chair of JupyterCon. This conversation grew out of a recent email thread between the three of us, where we were discussing this uh, new role, the machine learning engineer, which LinkedIn recently pegged as the fastest growing job in the U.S., In our email back and forth, there was some disagreement on whether such a job was needed in the first place. And I would like to also point out that Eric Colson gave a beautiful keynote at Strata San Jose recently, where he also argued that uh, maybe creating specialized roles early can slow down your data team. We recorded this conversation at Strata San Jose while Jesse was in the middle of teaching his very popular two-day training course on real-time systems. And I asked him what he was seeing as far as uh, data infrastructure. And so we closed this podcast with Jesse's take on Apache Pulsar, a very impressive new messaging system that is really starting to gain fans among data engineers. I hope you enjoyed this episode.
1: Jesse Anderson of the Big Data Institute and my colleague, Papo Nadan of O'Reilly Media. Welcome to The Data Show.
2: Thank you for having us. Thanks, man.
1: One of the reasons I wanted to get you two together, it's because you seem to have a difference in opinion over a, a topic that I helped put out there, which is this uh, new job role called the machine
2: learning engineer.
1: So first of all, uh, let's have Jesse describe to us what he
2: thinks a machine learning engineer is. One of the issues I'm seeing as I work with teams is that they're trying to operationalize machine learning models. And the data scientists are not the one to productionize these. They simply don't have the engineering skills. Conversely, the data engineers don't have the skills to operationalize this either. So we're seeing this kind of gap in between the uh, data science and the data engineering. And the gap I'm seeing and the way I'm seeing it being filled is through a machine learning engineer. So my one line definition of a machine learning engineer is a person who's sitting and is proficient at both data engineering and data science and can operationalize these models. Or has working knowledge of both. Has working knowledge of both.
1: And so Paco, on the other hand, uh, feels like uh, this uh, new job role is
2: premature. Yes, I'm
1: a a bit cautious
3: about it. Uh, And my reasoning is that when you look at large workflows where you're putting machine learning in production, really only a tiny part of it is the machine learning models. Most of it is data infrastructure. And so there's a lot of plumbing, there's a lot of engineering that we see, there's a great paper out of Google about uh, machine learning being the high interest credit card of uh, tech debt. And one of the illustrations there was showing like the whole landscape of, of what you really need to implement. And, you know, machine learning is this tiny little box in the middle of it. So I guess my concern there is uh, there's, there's a pervasive problem in the industry of companies need to get their act together in terms of data infrastructure before they can really get to the step of doing AI apps. And uh, there's a lot of work that has to be done, breaking down silos, getting data science practices in place. A lot of engineering there. I, I would argue more for uh, more of a general approach, because I, I think that it's 2018. If you're an engineer, you're working with data, you need to be applying b- practices for data. I don't think the specialization is necessary. So
1: you, so, but uh, uh, on the other hand, you're okay with the job role, data engineering, kind of a general job role? Or...
3: It's needed.
1: I mean, I, I in
3: my perspective, I, I think that if you're an engineer right now, software engineer, you need to be applying best practices for data or you're probably not an engineer really because it's just so pervasive so I, I think that we need to recognize that on the other hand there are there is a lot of specialized tooling and people need to have the expertise they need to know where the gotchas are so um, I you know t- to be honest I see data science as a great discipline but the labels themselves I tend to back on
1: it's got, actually uh, going to the data engineer uh, you raised the point of uh, there's a lot of tools to Honestly, to be honest, uh, when you go into companies, there might be people who specialize in one piece of infrastructure, <laughs> right? So so Jesse, having heard Paco out, do you think this new job title is a
2: bit premature? I don't think so. I, I disagree with Paco that generalization is the way to go. I think it's hyper-specialization, actually. It, and th- this is coming from my, my experience having taught a lot of enterprises. At a startup, I would say, that super specialization probably not going to be as possible. But at that enterprise, you are going to have to have a team that specializes in big data. And that is apart from a team, even a software engineering team that doesn't uh, work with data. So in that sense, I don't see that we can have that everybody has to do data. There are teams that have to do data and there aren't. And I'd love to see even more data engineers out there, but this is just plain difficult. And so you are going to have to specialize. Not everybody can do this specialization.
1: So I guess, Faha, when uh, I co-wrote that post on what are machine learning engineers, one of the points we tried to make is that uh, machine learning is a lot more pervasive in terms of uh, the need for it in a variety of different products. And so there's uh, more need for, for actually using and deploying, monitoring it in production. So at least from my conversations with companies, it seemed like they, they did make a distinction between the kind of the data engineer working on infrastructure and the machine learning engineer who knows enough about machine learning to actually uh, deploy, deploy machine learning products. Well, I'm curious, when you're talking about
3: deployment of machine learning, are, are you talking about once you get a model out there immediately, maybe you'll see degradation because the data is drifting? Or how do you determine performance of a model?
1: Yeah. So... So I think I think those those definitely are part of it, but just even making sure that whatever a data scientist builds in a notebook can be uh, deployed to production, meaning the pipelines that are required to make sure the features that the data scientists are using are robust and things like that. But then beyond that, I think the machine learning engineer is not going to work independent of the data scientist once the uh, model is out in production in the sense that there might still be some specialized machine learning knowledge in terms of model degradation. That machine learning engineer, from my perspective, knows enough about machine learning to actually uh, get this machine learning product out, but may still need the help of a, a data scientist for the fine-tuning of the
3: model. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I think uh, on the one hand, we've we've had the notion of containers in the web app since for a long time. Rich history of that out of JVM work, and uh, this notion of application deployment and monitoring—that space is pretty well defined. New Relic and the rest; There's great practices. But in, in that space, in that space. But the corollary for that machine learning—we're still kind of missing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's really important. I would worry though that there's, you know, somebody who's the machine learning engineer who's designed, but then there's also upstream the data scientists who are building models, who's really close to the domain, who really understands the domain knowledge, because you know, independent of the algorithms.
1: Yeah, I think, I think the data scientists would probably be the closest because they probably will be the ones interacting with the product groups to get this prototype model.
3: Well, Jesse, I thought you had a really good point, too, about relative size of organizations and how that bears on it.
2: Yeah, I think this is, if you're talking about a startup, you probably will have equal amounts of domain knowledge on both. But as you get to that enterprise scale, ideally, both have an equal amount. So the way I kind of see this working is, if you were to think about two circles with an arrow in between, that one circle being the data engineering, one circle being the data science, that kind of circle in the middle that's kind of gluing it together would be the machine learning engineer, and that's kind of what I'm what I'm seeing that missing part. So as we as part of that, there is domain. So that person will have to be a domain expert, have a domain expertise as well, perhaps not at the level that the data scientist would. I think the the real clear point that I have here is that their knowledge of data scientists is not the level of a data scientist. What we're trying to do is we can offload some duties onto them, but they're not a data scientist.
1: You know, in, in, as I was preparing to record this podcast, I recalled after we published our post on what are machine learning engineers, a couple of people, uh, from one from Quora, one from Salesforce, said, oh, yeah, we use this title now. This is a great idea. So I started searching for these tweets, and then and I ended up in a... Uh, uh, Paco is mesh arguing with the same people about, oh, we don't need this role, we don't. <laughs> so, so tell, can you describe uh, how, how this, oh, so actually, in this particular thread of uh, them arguing on Twitter, uh, Paco was the one who actually started it. <laughs> Those <laughs> can't who
2: can't see Paco right now, said, said his this, face is this, very this, red. Who said it's this, not just <laughs> the cider. Who said this? Uh, uh,
1: I think Paco basically, basically was saying, uh, this new job title is uncalled for. <laughs> Yeah.
3: You know, I, I think that as a, as a hiring manager, if I was looking at resumes and somebody's coming from a 20-person startup and they're the machine learning engineer in the 20-person startup, I'm going to roll my eyes because I just think that in that kind of context, you, yeah, that level of specialization, just it, it's a red flag. It, it just doesn't sound right. If somebody was coming out of a large insurance firm with, you know, like a small army of developers, then uh, that's really interesting. And I wanted to find out what their practices are. I think, you know, necessary evil in that area. I, I think so, it's probably so a really good earlier, moniker, like earlier, Jesse was saying.
1: earlier, when you were talking about I was almost thinking that you're trying to describe, in your ideal, you were trying to describe the equivalent of a full-stack engineer in the data space. Is that,
3: am I misreading it? Well, I guess some of my earlier training from IBM and others is showing through, but we, we used to talk about, you know, from engineering management, we used to talk about ratios on teams, like you'd have a certain number of Development engineers, certain number of QA, a certain number of people doing docs and things like that. And I, I, I think the way that it's shaking out is, I mean, data science is really important, but probably your ratio of need for data scientists to data engineers is pretty imbalanced. You're going to need a lot of data engineers, probably at the end of the day, if you can get them. Uh, so I, I guess my question there is, like, you know, depending on the size of your organization, you know, if I have 100 people and I need five data scientists and 50 data engineers, how many machine learning engineers?
1: Or do I, do I just call the machine
2: learning engineers data engineers? Pretty much, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. that's the thing. I, I would say that you couldn't. I think that the data engineers that I've talked to, yeah. uh, this is a, pe- a point I'll be making in, a, in an upcoming piece, saying engineers don't like uncertainty. And I what I'm finding is that the very specific differentiator, or one of the big differentiators between a data engineer and a machine learning engineer, is to be comfortable with a confidence level rather than a true or false. And as I've taught this to to engineers, the idea that you are not true or false is just mind-boggling to them, that you're having to tweak these things, and you're having to tweak a, data, a machine learning model, and even then, you only get a confidence interval, that only a few people, and what I think will be machine learning engineers, are okay with that.
1: So the, the bad news for Paco is that LinkedIn released a study in December and the, the, of the hottest job role.
3: Number one was
1: machine learning.
3: (laughs) What was the study done by the recruiters? (laughs) You know, Jesse brings up a really good point. I think a really key point. Typically, we think about machine learning as generalization, but uh, when you get into active learning, uh, semi-supervised, human-in-the-loop kind of scenarios, you can use machine learning to point out the uncertainty in a data set and where you try to steer the expertise of a company. So, I I think that you know, I'll be talking about how uh, case studies of businesses where they're using machine learning exactly to point out the uncertainty, because taking it back from the engineers, business people on one hand love uncertainty. That's where the profit is. And so the upside is going to be somewhere within that space. And when you talk to business people, there's, you know, going back a century, there's this relationship going back to like night, like in the 1920s of profit, uncertainty versus risk. If you just have pure risk, you buy insurance, but uncertainty is where you're going to find the upside. I think that that's a really good case for looking beyond traditional engineering rules of how machine learning can interoperate with the, the business side.
1: So let's assume for now that a company does have this job role of machine learning engineer. So now you, we're talking about three
2: roles, data engineer, machine learning engineer, data scientist. What's the relative ratio of these roles? That's a good question. One issue that companies are having is not understanding that ratio and therefore being incredibly unproductive with big data. So a general ratio there is one data scientist to every, sometimes two, sometimes as high as five data engineers. And this is a, the way that you decide that is actually a fundamental theme, I think, where you can no longer just say, it's one developer to two QA. That kind of brings in that small data mindset where things are pretty linear in terms of complexity increase. When we're dealing with big data, we have sometimes exponential increases in complexity sometimes vastly higher. So when we try to bring in that small data mindset of I can just bring in that straight over, that we can't do that. So what you actually have to do is you have to look at your data pipeline. You have to look at how mature it is. You have to look at how complex it is. And until you do that, you can't say, well, I need two or I need five. You're actually going to have to really look at it and say, what am I trying to do? How complex is this? And then say, okay, I need two data engineers. And then there's that machine learning engineer I see that that being a, a relatively small part of the org, maybe one, maybe two, depending on what levels that they're working at. But I am seeing the, the importance there, but it's not going to be this this massive, where there's a, there's a small army of machine learning engineers. Yeah, because for the most part,
1: the media and uh, pop culture talk a lot about models and algorithms, but uh, definitely most people are still, uh, it's all about the data and the features and you can get companies to talk about what models they're using. They'll never tell you what features they're using, right? So
3: Yeah, when, when I'm in-house talking with enterprise firms, I mean, the scramble to get to the point of having a future store, that's the game. I mean, until you can get to that point, your models are very ad hoc. You're not really getting a lot of leverage off your data scientists.
1: So let's put Paco on the spot too. We'll give you 100 headcounts. You, you do the allocation to data engineers, data scientists, and machine learning engineers, a role you don't accept.
3: Wait a hundred? Is there <laughs> exactly? Well, are there other engineers as well? I mean, they're like sure, web yeah, app yeah. developers and all.
1: Well, no, but just in the data team, let's say these three roles, just for these three roles. Yeah.
3: What, what I'm hearing, what I'm learning from you all about this kind of definition, uh, you know, I, I, I have heard similar kinds of things going into places like uh, throw out some names, Nike and Thomson Reuters and some others recently. And I, I would say that you're you're probably going to see, yeah, like Jessica was saying, like a one to five ratio at least. And a lot of these firms or these kinds of organizations, I'm doing some back of the napkin calculations in my head right now. But um, the one to five on that and then the machine learning engineer, it, it depends how long term this is. I don't see a career path, but I see real poignant needs right now. Um, so, yeah, who's going to build out your future store and make it so it can fit in with your your machine learning platform for generating models? That kind of work, you know, in a hundred percent team, you might have five people doing that. For a time, so uh, I don't know if that's giving you hard numbers, but I'm, I'm seeing it being somewhat transient.
1: I guess uh, so. Let's take this uh, question and um, move ahead five, ten years. I think, to some extent, a lot of how we're answering these questions and defining these roles has to do with the current state of tools and the current state of infrastructure. But you know, we're moving into a world where maybe some of these tools are going to get simpler to use. Maybe machine learning will be used to do a lot of the DevOps for these things, for tuning some of these uh, infrastructure components. So then at that point,
2: what are the roles and what are the ratios? In the role? So in my opinion, that the five to 10 years and with the better tooling, and I think that better tooling is key. I don't ever think we'll ever have, to make an analogy, WordPress. We're not going to ever have WordPress completely stymie and kind of remove web development. And I, I don't think we're going to have that with AI. I don't. I think we're going to have a still a very qualified person, but that very qualified person, that machine learning engineer will be able to do more and more that that 80 percent that they can achieve. Maybe it goes from initially right now, let's say 50 percent. They can do 50 percent of what a data scientist could that that eventually becomes with better tools, 80 percent, 90 percent. And at that point in time, you you don't uh, completely lay off your entire data science team you continue to move your data science team onto more and more complex things where those less complex parts of it you can put on the machine learning engineer. So one of the the comments I make in that post that I was referring to, I wonder if machine learning engineers will be the DBAs of the future. In other words, a DBA, if you've ever went to one of their trainings, it's memorizing how (laughs) things work in, let's say, Oracle, and how does it go through and do all of its calculations in order to return a result. And I'm wondering if this is what's going to be a machine learning engineer. Well, you will learn in depth about this. And as long as it fits within that band, you can knock that out of the park. And you can have a person who configures that. But once it gets a millimeter outside of that, then you're going to have to say, it's time to call in the data scientist.
1: Well, there's that that previous episode I had with Tim Kraska. We're already doing using machine learning to build database indexes. And uh, there's some research that's going to come out of, out of Amp, Amplab that's going to start doing query optimization using machine learning.
3: Yeah, I, well, I, I really agree with Jesse what you're saying about that analogy of like machine learning engineering DDA. I think that, that that holds really well. And I'm also, I'm a big fan of what's going on in the code gen space. I think that when you, you couple really interesting machine learning with human in the loop, you're seeing companies going in like Crowdbotics mining a JIRA history. Because frankly, a lot of these organizations keep doing the same thing over and over again. But this is great history of uh, semi-structured data that shows dates and times and allocations, and uh, and so they're getting.
1: Yep, Peter Peter Norvig is doing something like this inside Google.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of great stuff, and so I, I think I mean to to build on like some things that have come out of Google. Pete Warden had a blog post about ten years from now, software we won't be writing code. Well, wow. um, I wouldn't really go that. Well, you know, I I think that there's a lot of code that gets rewritten and rewritten. And I I think that when you look at like security issues, we're going to have to have a bit more automation into the code gen, if even for insurance reasons. But it's just like what Jesse said, the complexity is going to shift it. So the teams will work on the hard parts, but we'll have code gen for the easy.
1: Yeah, we were talking about this, I think, yesterday in the sense that if uh, one of the trends around technology right now is automation because of AI, well, who's... Who's going to automate what they're doing first? Well, it's the engineers.
3: In the, fi- the five-year, I'll crawl down on the limb and say that with, in the five-year horizon, we'll see some softening on demand for software engineers. Just the way the numbers are playing out and other things, GDPR and all that, I, I think that more and more complex domain
1: expertise can become more important. So at that point, Jesse, what would you be doing if there's less software engineers?
2: <laughs> I don't think there's ever a time when software engineering is, will, will go away.
1: Well, no, he's not no, saying I, it's going
2: away. Well, e- even even that we'd so we have code that we can use already. They're called APIs. They're called frameworks. And guess what? Engineers still love to rewrite their own. Well, I'm I'm looking at like Airbnb
3: has done really interesting work with deep learning to go from whiteboard drawings of wireframe. To actually generating code for websites. And there's others picking up on this too. So I, these yeah, are the kind uh,
1: of... Code I, I think actually this thing around automation, if you look at all of the interesting examples, a lot of it is around software engineering.
2: It's because the people who are building these tools are software engineers. Right? I, I'm worried about the, the low end being cut out. So I think there's a low end of software development that that's what I see being replaced. I also see a lot of the more DBA roles being replaced, not just by, by cloud instances, but I can now use AI to, to do a lot of this tuning for myself. So I'm worried about some of the technical, but low end technical jobs is going away. And, and, and there won't be an uh, upward pressure. There'll actually be a downward pressure where those people will have to go and take less technical jobs, lower paying. And that's what I'm I'm really worried about.
1: So I'm going to make a sharp pivot in this episode. And, uh, because I I know that one of the things that Jesse's interested in is real time and streaming. So this is a surprise topic. So uh, Jesse, what in this conference has caught your eye so far as far as uh, streaming tools, new streaming tools and frameworks?
2: There's a lot of effort going into this. If, if there was a, if I were to to find a a college student and they were say Jesse, what should I be doing? I would say you should get your fundamentals about you for batch and then immediately move in to start doing real time because that is the growth that's where people, that's where companies are investing.
1: But uh, surely, Jesse, real time is over, right? So we've been talking about real time forever. I mean, we've got all sorts of stream processing frameworks, messaging tools. Isn't, isn't it game over?
2: No, this one's the beginning. This is, we didn't have good tools for streaming for real time big data. We had closed source ones, and, and some of those worked really well. But now we have open source ones that companies are given a choice. You can use the open source one, you can use the closed source one. But now you, you have a cost savings of 10x or higher uh, when looking at that. And so now the companies are able to do, okay, we, we, ne- we did, decided not to do that due to cost. Let's recircle background and say, oh, the co- it's not cost prohibitive anymore. Let's go ahead and roll that out.
1: So when I look at streaming, I, I think of uh, the messaging layer. So that's usually Kafka, And then lots of options in the stream processing layer. And then uh, more, more recently on the storage layer, uh, people are looking to unify storing streams of data and historical data as so, well so it seems like the stream processing layer we kind of have a handle on is it true that the it, on the messaging layer is that more or less settled or do you have anything new to say there
2: yeah so i've i've a lot of my time since i'm really teaching data engineering is spent on that ingestion that how do we message how do we move this data around efficiently and so a lot of for a lot of that time it was Kafka was really the only open source game in town for that. But now there's another technology called Apache Pulsar. And so I've spent a decent amount of time actually going through Pulsar. And there are some things that I see in it that Kafka will either have difficulty doing or will, won't will be able to do. I, I think one of those was is called selective acting in it. And oftentimes people want to do what's called a work queue in Kafka. They want to get in a message and say, okay... Uh, here's a message, here's a file, I want you to go transcode that. Let's say transcode video. You can do that with Kafka if you do some backflips, but it's built into Pulsar to be able to selectively act on something and say, yes, I received that message to go process that and I'm done with it. The difficulty there with Kafka is how do you circle around and say, all right, that one failed and that one failed, I better restart that. That's a that's a difficult part. Uh, another one I, I saw interesting is the really a tight coupling of how Kafka brokers store their data. So what will happen to companies is that they can have a skew in that partitioning of data and that where that data is stored. So one partition may have much less data than another one, and that just may be due to the brokers will have a really hot topic uh, on for, for one partition and less usage to the other. And so you can have this significant data skew amongst those where one's hard drive is barely used and another one's almost full so one of the things that kafka or excuse me apache pulsar will do is striping so they can actually stripe that across multiple bookkeepers so they use bookkeeper for the storage so you don't just have to write it to one you can actually write it to several different ones and as a direct result now you have that um you don't you you have kind of a wear leveling, kind of what you do with a with a raid there uh, another one I found interesting was the separation of PubSub from the storage. So when they when I first was read about that, I didn't quite get it. I didn't quite see, all right, why is this so important or why is this so interesting? It's because you can individually scale, not so much your PubSub. Your PubSub will probably, your pub/sub side will probably stay about the same. But if you can scale your storage resources uh, independently, now you've got something. Now you can say, well... We originally decided I wanted seven days. All right, let's spin up some more bookkeepers there and some more bookkeeper processes. And now we can store 14. Now we can store 21 days. I think that's going to be a pretty interesting addition there. Where uh, the the other side of that, the corollary to that is, okay, we're we're hitting Black Friday, and we really we don't have so much more data coming through as we have way more uh, consumption and way more things hitting our, our pub sub. We could spin up more more pub sub of that. This, this breakup is actually allowing uh, some really interesting use cases around that. Um, for the ops side, for the ops people, the one I'm seeing that's very interesting is the built in replication. So, there's obviously replication that you can do with Kafka, with Mirror Maker, with Kafka Connect, but those are when, when you have to force somebody to set something up, they'll often either set it up wrong or it will take them more time. And so, what I'd really prefer to see is built in replication. And that built-in replication makes it much easier to do highly available things. And as a direct result, the customer usage, the, the customer success there is, oh yes, we can have an active-active and it's going to do the replication for us. Uh, I saw this when HBase rolled out replication. Before it was really painful. They rolled out replication and it was, people were were actually talking about how well it worked. People were successful in it. Where they didn't have to worry about did that get replicated? Did we set that up right? It was out of the box, good, uh, a good customer experience, and that's kind of what I'm looking for from Pulsar.
1: So I see as he was talking, right? So it became crystal clear to me that the, that's a data engineering role.
2: So that's not a
1: machine <laughs> learning engineering role, right? So I mean, anyone who's managing this piece of infrastructure, yeah, definitely the infrastructure
3: there. Be data engineering and 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 to kind of go back to your question before about is real time a done deal is this it's really coming for now yeah with IoT yeah and and you had this excellent episode with Danny Lang, Lang yeah 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 uh, but but you know reinforcement learning is really interesting right, right. so much research but what you know kind of to me the crux of that is we want to move we want to shift away from predictive analytics where we're assigning labels correctly hopefully to prescriptive analytics, yeah where we're yeah, taking yeah. action. And we're learning about our actions in the real world, how to handle a transportation grid or an energy grid or a manufacturing line. Right.
1: What to do in a certain scenario.
3: And for for that, for reinforcement learning, a it's orders of magnitude more than deep learning for the data requirements. But b it's also real time. Unless we have really good, clean, reliable data, real time, you really can't even start to get into the reinforcement learning use cases.
1: So you're you're familiar with old school terms, right? So. What do you think of complex event processing?
3: Yeah, so CEP, that's that's coming back. I mean, it's it's a nice idea from an abstraction level. Um, and, and that was, you know, people, when we were going into Storm and maybe some early parts of Spark Streaming and S4, they they're kind of the open source contenders in that area. But always the banking people and others would want to come in with their rule sets that were yeah. expressed to CEP. And they're like, hey, how does this fit? There's always kind of a, a, you know, an impedance mismatch.
1: Because the, the, they were the use cases. Out of the box for, for these tools. Well, it does fit,
3: but you know the other side of it is it really kind of gets you back into the DBA sort of thing. I mean, you're you're thinking about a system, you're making some rules. I would hope that at we're at this point where we can apply more machine learning techniques to evolve rules. I mean, I think that that's more of you know more of the power in reinforcement learning is hopefully we don't have to have a lot of like hard-coded rules stuck somewhere deep in the code. And so I'd be worried about carrying over too much of CEP, but overall I think we have to be able to explain our models, and so it might be it might be a good abstraction there.
1: So Jesse, in closing, uh, you talked about Pulsar. Uh, is Pulsar something that uh, people can uh, use now? Is it ready for production? Is it How easy is it to use in terms of, uh, I mean, so the incumbent being Kafka, I mean, if I'm a Kafka person, is, is it going to be relearning everything from scratch?
2: There's a few things that, that uh, Pulsar has done in order to reduce that that barrier. Uh, one is that they actually did API, uh, an, a Kafka API where it is compatible, an, an API compatible for Kafka. But on the back end, it's using um, Pulsar for that. So your
1: apps will run.
2: So your apps would run. So that was an interesting move. Uh, I would really love just in general to see a single unified API for messaging. That's, I, I would just love that. Oh, no, Apache Beam. The, it would be the Apache Beam for, <laughs> for messaging. Uh, so that, that would be nice. What you're, you're definitely going up against Kafka. So Kafka definitely has much more of the market share. At the same time, Kafka didn't have the market share three years ago. So in, in many ways, it isn't set in stone. What I personally want to see is competition for Kafka to make it better. You know, they're, they're kind of, they, Just
1: like with the stream processing framework.
2: Yeah, if there's competition, they will be pushed to, to really outdo each other in terms of what each one is doing. That. And you can tell my, my, my thoughts on that, on the market pushing, the market will make things better because if there's competition, you won't just have a better Kafka, you also have a better Pulsar. And you'll also, the, the people who are buying it will also now have better uh, pricing strategies, that there will be a competition in terms of pricing.
1: Very cool. So thank you, Jesse and Paco. Thank, you,
2: thank you.
0: You can follow Jesse Anderson and Paco Nathan on Twitter at Jesse T. Anderson and Paco Id, respectively. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher, or TuneIn.com, or SoundCloud, and never miss an episode.